Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 376 on our show. Before we get going and bring on Jim, this is the middle episode of a Thursday triple header here. Uh, we had uh, Albert Breer on, Sports Illustrated, Monday morning quarterback. And then uh, following Jim, we have Dan Knopfsinger, former baseball ops for Miami Marlins, actually from Schenectady, where I'm from. So Joe Frazero said he wants to talk a little Schenectady. Not sure quite our audience our audience is ready for that yet, except for our Schenectady listeners. But um, before we get going, just want to thank 60,000. You guys know what to do after this show. We're fighting the analytics just like they do in baseball. Five stars, write some great comments. Move us up the iHeart Radio podcast rankings here. Blackout Coffee, if you want to get a discount at checkout, use Jim's code here, J-A-M-E-R-20. All caps will get you a 20% discount at checkout. Buy as much as you want for your holiday on him. We appreciate Blackout Coffee's Be Awake, Not Woke slogan here. They're a big supporter of ours. And uh, to our buddy Ted Kubiak, our probably our most loyal listener, very first guest we had on our podcast a long time ago. If you got a stocking stuffer uh, for, for a baseball lover, I recommend Old School. Great book by Ted. Talks about his journey through baseball and how he sees the movement of our game through his lens. Uh, one of the slickest fielding shortstops you're ever going to see, three-time world champion. He also has a manual of how to field a baseball. The most comprehensive uh, tutelage I've ever seen, read, heard on how to field a ball. Totally different than what you're going to see on those YouTube gurus that we we look at. So Stocking Stuffer with Ted, go to his website to get it, or you can get it on Amazon.com, or reach out to me, and I'll connect you directly to Ted. But uh, with that, Jim, welcome back to your show. Big night last night for the New York Yanks, huh? Yes, yes. Hello, Dave. Hello, audience. How's everybody doing? Um, yeah, late. I guess it was about 11 p.m. I heard a report, uh, and it was reconfirmed this morning that the Yankees pulled off the Soto trade. And uh, you I, was know, to, I was tired of getting. Try, I was actually tired of hearing about it. Um, I was glad they finally did. I'm tired of Otani too. I wish they just get that done. It's getting starting to wear on me. Yeah, there was a there was a couple episodes yesterday on uh, New York Sports Radio where the some of the uh, the commentators were talking about with uh, you know turn your turn your Twitter off because every single guy's tweeting basically the same thing they tweeted three hours earlier, but using different words to announce that Soto's going to the Yankees, but nothing was confirmed. So yeah. They were, uh, you know, everybody's trying to be the first one and be the one that says that they're, they're the one that called it. But, uh, yeah, I guess it, it came down last night. And when I woke up this morning, that was one of the things that, that hit me. Um, listen, Juan Soto, obviously, he's a, he's an outstanding player. His numbers speak for himself, his age. He's only 25 years old. What he's accomplished up till now is, you know, reminiscent of the Mickey Mantle and Ted Williams days. And, uh I guess you could say Tony Conigliaro before he got hurt. Guys that at a young age were uh, putting up outstanding numbers. Yeah. But the thing that hit me about it was a couple of days earlier, they said the holdup was the Yankees didn't want to give up both King and Thorpe, right-handed pitchers. Uh, King being a relief pitcher for the last three years for the Yankees, who – Oh, probably the last third of the season, they moved into the starting ro- rotation, and he pitched pretty good. Yeah, did a nice job. Um, you know, big, strong, athletic guy, good arm. Uh, watched a couple of his starts, and, and he started executing some more pitches instead of relying on the so-called sweeper that he had come up in the previous offseason. And uh, 
I really liked what I saw. But the the thing that struck me about this was the other guy in the deal, Brito, reliever. Uh, you watch him pitch in relief. He'll come into a game, and he's throwing 100 miles an hour. And some days he's on, and he's lights out, and some days he walks the ballpark. And you're just saying to a guy that is that big and strong and can throw the ball that well, who's like who's working with him to develop the ability to pitch and throw strikes? And yet you just see it. It's, it's, it just keeps going. So either that means to me that the player just isn't paying attention or doesn't want to change or actually nobody's changing him. They're just looking at his analytics and his numbers and attempting to uh, – to just go from that, you know, and it's a hit or miss operation on the good days. We're good on the bad days. Let's get them the heck out of there. Put somebody else in there. Um, so the Padres in getting in return. And I do realize that Soto is a free agent at the end of the year. And Boris is his agent. So of course he's going to dip his foot in the free agent waters there and see what's going on. And I'm sure it's going to be an insane contract, especially if, uh, if Otani ends up, you know, getting six hundred million, uh, Soto is going to definitely beat the. I guess it was about four forty-five or something like that that uh, uh, he was offered previously. I believe by the Nationals before they traded him. So you know, there, there's the built-in stuff there that, yeah, we're only going to have him for a year. From the Yankee standpoint, you know, I personally think that if Cashman and Boone turn in another season like they had last season, they might not be long you know, for the job, uh, even though Hal is a little, you know, slow to pull the trigger, if you would say, not like his dad. But so the Yankees needed to make this trade, so they made it. So in return, the Padres are getting four pitchers and a backup catcher. Now, the backup catcher is, uh, I can't say his last name. Everybody calls him Higgy. Higgy, yep. Yep. He's a California guy, so he's going back to California. I'm sure he's going to enjoy that. Uh, he's a solid, you know, professional backup catcher. Uh, he'll run into a, uh, run into a couple of mistakes here and there and hit a few home runs for you. He's all the analytics say that he's good at framing pitches and the Padres were horrible at that. So I'm sure that's going to help some of their pitchers. Um, but the Padres have to restock. I think they've lost three or four pitchers already to free agency. So they need to restock. So that's their course of action. But now let's look at really what they got in return. They received a basically two-and-a-half-year relief pitcher. That's pretty good. Who then was converted to a starter and over a small sample size of about a quarter of a season, he looked uh, like he could get the job done. But that's a small sample size. Yeah. Now he's the head. You could say he's probably the headliner of the trade. You know, yeah, from that side, the whole thing. Okay, so basically, you have a uh, relief pitcher who's currently stretched out. Um, he probably threw some some games as a starter in the, in the minor leagues. I don't doubt that. Uh, and now he's going to the Padres to prove himself. And the way that their rotation looks, he might have to be the third man in the in the rotation. So that's a pretty important spot. And it's going to be, uh, you know, imperative that he has a good season in order for them to have a good season. 
So I wouldn't say that that's a frontline starter right off the bat. Um, next up, they get Thorpe, who started the season in A-ball, did pretty good, but then went to double-A and his numbers even improved. And he was probably, I guess, their top pitching prospect. Um, now, you hear reports say that he's got a fringe fastball. Then all of a sudden someone says, well, it's 90 to 94. So the fact that we haven't seen him, we really don't know where, you know, where he pitches with his fastball, to be honest, because this is going to be a lot of media spin and a lot of, you know, uh, building up the players that you're sending someplace in a trade. And then the Padres are going to say that, you know, he's 90 to 94 and he can get it up there pretty good because, you know, they're trying to create a, a, an idea that they got a good return. And then there's Brito that we spoke of before, who's kind of a hit or miss reliever. Now, there's something that's a little bit deceiving here. If you look at Brito's numbers, they're actually really good. But if you watch the situations he pitches in, and you watch when he's not having a good day, how they get him right out of there. <coughs> Excuse me. So there's a lot of times he's not necessarily charged with a lot of runs. He's having a bad day. He's giving up other people's runs. And uh, then I believe the other pitcher, Vasquez, which I don't know much about. So that brings me back to the thought of there's such a high demand of pitching, but where is the pitching? I mean, the Padres just traded Juan Soto, a generational talent. Granted, he's going to be a free agent. They're not going to be able to afford him because they have a whole bunch of guys. Last year, they did not have a good season. A whole bunch of superstars didn't work out. Okay. They had to trade him. I understand that. But just think of what really transpired. I mean, the Yankees received Juan Soto for a year for basically four pitching prospects. Because you're not, you haven't necessarily seen them in the roles that they will have to undertake in the next year or two in order for that trade to be successful for the Padres. Yep. It's all speculation, all, all hope. And, you know, we look at these pitchers and we had this discussion yesterday with Jim, Jim Cott on his show, Cott's Corner. And the way that they're training pitchers nowadays, they went from, you know, seven inning guys beyond to, you know, a little over five to four and two thirds. Now we're down to four and a third. And Ted Simmons had, I don't know if you saw it on uh, with Brian Kenny the other night, he kind of foreshadowed what we're about to enter in terms of baseball pitching. And that's the, you know, the three inning pitcher basically where guys go through the, the lineup one time and then they get taken out one time. And he put a whole program together based on uh, his belief that baseball's headed in that direction. And we've got to look back to the training on that. Correct. Yes. That's, that's the reason for my point today. When I saw this trade, it just reminded me of all the things where, Professional baseball has ended up severely lacking in the development of young pitchers and young starting pitchers. Um, my years as a pitching coordinator for the Brewers, one of the things that Doug Melvin stressed was that uh, we're a small market club. We can't afford to go out and pay $8 million for a fourth starter. All right. We have to develop pitching. Um, in my days as coordinator, you know, we got we got lucky that 
Giovanni Gallardo slipped out of the first round because of a couple of reasons, and we picked him up in the second round, and he became the ace of the staff. We were then able to trade for uh, Zach Greinke. We were then able to trade for CC Sabathia. Um, so that helped out tremendously. But there was a con- we had a constant pipeline of, of young pitchers, and we're not we're not saying that they ended up being some of the most uh, highly spoke of pitchers at the time. But they were all big league pitchers, and they all got the job done. Whether it would be uh, Chris Capuano, who became an all-star, to even Chris Narvison. Um, Carlos Villanueva became a quality relief pitcher, who Albert Pozo Pozo said had the best changeup in baseball. Um, We were able to trade for uh, Trevor Hoffman uh, to solidify the back end. We picked up John Axford after he was released out of low A ball by the Yankees. And within three years, he became a dominant closer in the big leagues. We picked up Derek, Derek Turnbow at a triple A for the angels because he had troubles throwing strikes. And next thing you know, we fixed them and uh, he became a dominant closer in the big leagues. So um, I'm not seeing a lot of those stories currently. Um, so my question is, you know, it's a hypothetical. Is the system broken? Uh, that's up to whoever's opinion wants to express it. I'm not. We can, we can agree they're getting the results that they're training for, whether they, you know, whether it's a positive or negative. What's that old old phrase? We don't raise the level of our expectations; we fall to the level of our training. Yes, and that's they're getting what they're training for. So whether they it's on purpose by accident, they're happy or sad, we're we're at least bringing it out, right? We're we're, we're they're getting what they're they're asking for. Right. Well, it reminds me of a an old story where you used to go into a draft room and there'd be discussions back and forth about taking a, a high school right-handed pitcher in the first round. And now there were some upper echelon guys uh, that you would have, you'd have to consider, but the um, analytics or IT guys at the time, they would say, you know, there's not a very high percentage of those picks that become quality starters in the big leagues. Um, My answer back then was, well, we have to look at how we develop these players. So instead of looking looking in the mirror and taking a hard look at how we develop these players and maybe where we have failed them, we are now just saying that you can't take those guys in the first round. And as analytics has advanced, what they're being trained to do is based upon the analytic model that I think Ted Simmons is a thousand percent correct. The people that make the decisions in baseball right now want three inning pitchers. They only want a guy to go through the order one time. So now is that because they take a look and they look at their numbers and say, we haven't been able to develop starting pitchers. Is that, well, we've let go of all the quality coaches and some of the quality scouts with the experience to see the different things that the numbers don't say. There's a variety of reasons, but the bottom line is that that's the model we're going for. Okay. So if you're a young high school pitcher, junior high school pitcher, you're learning how to pitch. Uh, you're the parents of young pitchers. 
We can take it a step further. You're a college coach, and maybe you're in a mid-major. So it'd be advantageous that, as that college coach or that mid-major, that you would have, uh, you know, two or three pretty good starting pitchers because pitching is a premium. The development of pitching has suffered over this, um, with this new analytical model and the, and the sellout for for velocity, the creation of force velocity, and. If you nab a couple of quality starting pitchers, you just elevated your program. But you get back to the young player, the parent, and yet we continue to follow these training mythologies that are totally focused on velocity. And on one side of the coin, I can I can understand because if you're if you're drafted and signed in the first round or even the top three rounds of the baseball draft nowadays, that's like, that's life-changing money. Whether you ever pitch in the big leagues or not really, really doesn't affect you that much. I mean, let's be honest, you know, you still got the money in the bank. You still got all the toys that you can play with and, and, uh, and you go on with your life. Now, I'm sure there's a downside to that. You know, you're not going to make, you know, Garrett Cole money. But that thought process goes right up the ladder. Okay. If we're in high school and we throw hard enough, then we'll get a college scholarship or we'll get some money or pro scouts will get interested. And even if I don't go high in the draft, then college coaches are more interested. And it just, it feeds itself. Instead of where are the individuals that are quality? and know what they're doing, and can go out there and find young pitchers and develop them. That's what I see lacking more and more. Um, it's almost like a purg. I feel like we're in a pitching purgatory right now. Well, it's similar. The environment that's created is similar to your past conversations about running backs in the NFL. Yeah. You know, um, so on one side, it's we're not going to pay starting pitchers. Um, especially the mid-level and, and, and smaller markets. We're going to create a model where our goal is to have, uh, you know, four pitchers a day, right? So let's say three, three, two, and one, because you have your closer, you have a setup guy, or, or maybe it's, you know, two guys that throw three, yeah. and then three guys that throw, you know, now that's five pitchers, Okay. Over five days, that's twenty. That's uh, twenty-five guys have to pitch. Yeah, I mean, if you change it every day, like I'm looking at it now as you're saying it out loud, I'm thinking I'm getting into my math mode. Like, what if you had? I guess you'd have to have like, if you wanted to keep it systematic, three five-man rotations, basically. If you were to go, those if, could those guys come back after three innings, and in, you know, in, in three days or four days, it's uh, it do, it does. Now you need more pitchers on the roster. We already have. What do they have on the rosters now? Eighteen. Uh, I mean, on the big league roster, I think the, they last year they cut it. I believe I could be wrong on the numbers to twelve, because the commissioner's thought process is if you have left pitch left less pitchers on the active roster, you're going to force some pitchers to throw deeper into games. <laughs> so what do they do? They started throwing left fielders and second basemen. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I guess you would look at 
if they're only throwing three innings, do you go to a four-man rotation with an occasional fifth starter when somebody needs a rest, somebody needs a break? Um, you know, the flip side is that people try to solve that problem in the past, and you saw a lot of clubs do it this past year where they went to a six-man rotation. Um, no, that's, you know, especially in the second half of the season, thinking that they're going to give some starters a rest so they can get ready for the playoffs. But once again, we're always trying to solve a problem instead of improve the training methods. Um, so my question is, all the hard throwers are all the high picks. But, but where's the sustained success? I mean, even the LSU guy, they, they, they gave him a, like three or four couple of starts after they signed him and they shut him down. Now, I'm sure he went to instructional ball, um, maybe the fall league, but I'm sure he went to instructional ball. And even there, instructional ball, you know, instructional ball used to be, well, we'll give the starting pitchers a break. They're almost on vacation. They'll throw five innings a start instead of nine innings or seven innings or eight innings. And you thought you were on holiday. I only got to throw five innings. And you come back five days later, you're feeling great. I only had to throw five innings. You never had to reach back. You never had to figure things out. You never had to make adjustments. You never had to learn how to pitch. Um, that was one of the things that uh, on a prior podcast, I believe Jim Cott spoke about, where we're never asking these people all through the development process to attempt to do any of this stuff. If we're not asking them to do it when they're in A ball, they're never going to do it in, in, in major leagues. Um, I went back to uh, the stories I had about I would sit down all the starting pitchers in the organization Hey, you're in A ball this year. I expect at least 20 starts. You know, you're in you're in double A, at least 25 starts. Triple A, 35, 30, 35, 30. Then in the big leagues, hopefully you can make 35 starts. All right. Uh, I I uh, created analytical development models that would reward in an evaluation process the individuals that could pitch deep into games, the individuals that could get outs in three pitches or less the individuals that threw first pitch strikes, all of these longstanding um, parameters of what made a successful starting pitcher. You know, it wasn't necessarily rocket science. It was just an application of when are we going to start rewarding the players for doing what we're asking in the development model, right? You know, um, now I'm not there on a day-to-day basis currently uh, in professional baseball to, to pass judgment on, you know, every single – organization and and what they're doing, but I can look at the results and not that I dug into it with my research, but currently, I mean, probably the one club with three quality starting pitchers and a fourth one who ended up, you know, getting hurt, but three quality starting pitchers who they developed since drafting and signing them or in a trade in rookie ball were the Brewers, Woodruff, Burns, and Peralta. Um, you know, uh, and what happens a lot of times is uh, Peralta came in a trade when uh, David Stearns was in charge, but the other guys, um, especially Woodruff, I'm pretty sure came over when Doug Melvin was a GM and Burns. Um, and, you know, I was there for all of those, but, if you're, if you're looking at the entire big league club, I mean, you look at the Yankees. 
So Severino has now failed. He's out. Herman kept getting hurt. He's out. Uh, Jordan Montgomery, who was actually pretty good, they traded. It leaves uh, Clark Schmidt. And he's the fifth starter. Uh, I don't know exactly where they got Cortez, so that would be Nolan, but he's hurt. Um, you know, the Mets. All those pitchers, they signed as free agents. Um, I'd have to dive into the Astros because they've been pretty good. But once Verlander left and some of the other guys, uh, McCullers is hurt and some of the others, they didn't necessarily have the uh, dominant starters come playoff time that they had in the past. You know, they had some quality arms that followed the analytical model and, and did what they did. So that was my question for today that the Soto trade reminded me of is that there's such a high demand of pitching, but where is it? And because we can't develop it, because we can't search and find it, we then change our whole evaluation and development model to sadly fall in line with what Ted Simmons said. We're going to go with, uh, you know, two guys that can throw three innings and then three guys that throw an inning apiece. And that's going to be the pitching model. And they did set the structure up for it. They reduced the draft. They took away the developmental leagues. And now they're going to expand uh, to Nashville, it looks like, uh, maybe an, even another team. So it's it's going to further uh, – it's going to create a system that demands that now. So I think they play coy at times, but they're very deliberate with their movements, MLB. Oh, and yes. Yeah, they know exactly what they're doing. No, like, oh, gosh, look where we're at now. Uh, they, they try to act like that sometimes. But yeah, they're heading in the direction that – that they want to get headed. And they're going to pay, and, and that's going to lower the value, as we've talked about several times, that's going to lower the value, the market value of pitchers to a more affordable, I guess not looking at the real world, but to a more affordable price. And it's, I've said it from the beginning with analytics, uh, when you, you can't treat a human like a dividend or a stock, you can't break them up into little pieces. They're not sources, or they're not things to be fixed. The, the, the people should be the resources to solve the problems. They're not the problem themselves to be fixed. So it's uh, interesting. Yeah, I know I, that's, a, that's, a, a, an, an, that's a different take than I've seen on the Soto trade. Um, and everything's about Soto, Soto and the lineup of the Yankees. But uh, you, you, you threw at, I know you, you educate me every week. So I, I get some selfish info out of this show, whether you know it or not. But what, what is this anti-rotation that you, you were talking about today? We started talking a little bit before the show, but I'm going to learn just as the audience is learning today. Right. Um, as I told you earlier, when, when I first saw the term, and I, I do believe it was uh, a book I read recently, which uh, I thoroughly enjoyed, and I'm going to highly recommend uh, to all young players and parents who you know, maybe you don't have the financial means to go out and hire a strength coach or conditioning or pitching coach or other things. And, and you're looking, you know, how do we do things in the, in the garage or in the backyard or, you know, even the playroom. And it's a book called, uh, move like a pro by Christopher Romano. And hopefully I'm trying to track him down. He's uh, I believe he's still currently a Detroit Tigers minor league strength and conditioning coach. Uh, he's got all the credentials, but I, before I purchased the book to read it, I saw some, um, some very practical, uh, videos that he put on YouTube. Uh, the one that I enjoyed the most was on hip mobility. 
And for me, it's finally a sane, practical look at youth strength training and the importance of youth strength training. And as he, he brings out, which is right in line to what we've talked about for a long time now, is that you train the movements, you train young players to move efficiently and correctly, and then you slowly progress into applying resistance to those quality movements. Um, it's not about exercise. I mean, everybody thinks about exercise and what do I call this exercise? And, and when you see it now, especially online and all the different things that are available, you know, there might be five different names for the same exercise or the same movement. You know, that, that doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is the quality efficient movement patterns that as we learn them, for example, how to hinge properly, uh, all the things we've talked about in the past, hip mobility, spinal stability, scapular stability. As we learn how to do that as part of the whole, we then slowly start progressing and adding resistance to that movement. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed his book. I recommend it highly. Um, he also reiterated you know, a lot of things that I say about the importance of learning how to hinge correctly. And um, he used this term, I'm pretty sure I'm quoting him correctly, but he used this term anti-rotation in some of the different exercises he does, different movements. And uh, it immediately brought me to, uh, I'm currently doing two group trainings, one at the facility for people, uh, for the pitchers that, um, and even some of the, the hitters, but that they finally fell in line with my recommendation of, you know, you're going to take some time off from throwing and we're going to have some active rest. And then in December, we're going to get into some, you know, uh, strength training and proper movement patterns. And we're going to work on the things that currently in my setup in the facility is we may work on them. And then I'm asking the uh, individual to work on them once or twice at home. And of course, some do it and some don't. Um, so I've included them on my, uh, I meet with them twice a week, Tuesday nights and Saturday mornings. And we go through a whole um, progression of, of movements. And, and a majority of what I do is with kettlebells. Um, of course, just like Christopher Romano stated, you know, um, resistance bands, kettlebells, and uh and body weight stuff is totally fine for all young kids. Um, you know, there's still there's still some out there that are arguing that uh, no kids shouldn't lift weights, and, and and but they're looking at it in a traditional model of of you know Olympic weightlifting and and bodybuilding and those type of what I've stated in the past, the, the U.S. physical therapist model of isolation work and muscle building and stuff like that. No, no, we're talking about successful movement patterns here. Um, so in the class, then I go on Wednesday nights and uh, one of the local travel teams, basically it's gotten to a point they, they almost employed me year round because I do the strength and conditioning um, through December the middle of January, then do a little pitcher's on-ramp. 
which is coming in this January, get pitchers ready for the upcoming season uh, properly. And then uh, a hitting boot camp to go over some of the things that we do that we have applied in, in, in the training that we've gone over the winter. And then they're ready for their season. Um, and then a lot of them, especially the pitchers, still come to me once a week, even during their season. They work it out so where they uh, their bullpen day would be the day that they come with me. Uh, and in this one travel team that's I've been working with now over a year, uh, I basically do the off-season conditioning, the on-ramping, the preseason work, the in-season work, and the off-season work. So it's been working out pretty good. But the thing that you see, you know, we do we do some of the basic things like um, different squat variations. You know, if it was if it's with a kettlebell or if it's with body weight, but uh, basically whether it's a, a goblet squat. Um, Double kettlebell, double dumbbell, you know, arms hanging to the side squat. Uh, we throw in split squats in there. And the thing that I started focusing attention on recently is this whole concept of anti-rotation. Because we discuss it when we're going over throwing mechanics and hitting mechanics. It's the old story, especially in, in, in throwing mechanics. Um, it works in hitting mechanics. Also, you know, the, the story of hip shoulder separation and how, you know, up until around the early 2000s, everybody spoke of it as trunk rotation. Even the Chinese in their, uh, in all their research to prepare an Olympic team for China, they talked about trunk rotation. And I used to say, no, it's a hip turn and a shoulder turn. And then in the early 2000s, they came up with hip separation. And next thing you know, everybody is working on improving their hip separation. But all they're doing is they're looking at a number, a number of degrees, like hips to shoulders and the whole thing, and, and they're trying to improve how large they can get that number uh, in their separation, degrees of separation. And really, that doesn't help us out because the only thing that helps us out in the ball game and in staying healthy is that we have control over that separation. We have control over the force that that torque creates. I mean, in the past we've talked, and, and I'm sure uh, on your podcast with Coach Sal, you've talked about the, the high end of oblique injuries and all these injuries that, you know, never really heard of uh, in baseball. I know we ha you had a brief conversation with uh, Wiley and Will on the same topic and the oblique injuries. Oh, it's crazy. It's an epidemic. <laughs> yes. And the, the thing is, is because we're continually working on improving the amount of force we can create, but we're not working specifically on the amount of force we can control. And that's where this term anti-rotation, I, I, I read it and I was like, that's an awesome way to put it. Because besides talking about hip mobility, which is stability and strength and flexibility, besides talking about uh, spinal stability, um, core strength, all that, scapular stability, okay? In the pitching and hitting motion, you're doing that while your body's rotating. So the anti-rotation type activities. So I started implementing more single, single rack 
So you got one kettlebell or dumbbell. You hold it up to the top of your chest, elbow straight down, and you do the squat or the split squat or whatever variation of exercise you're doing. Even if it was a uh, instead of a farmer's walk where you got the, the kettlebells and the dumbbells in your hands and you're walking, you can do what's called a high-low carry. One kettlebell's in the rack position up to the chest. The other kettlebell's hanging by the side and you walk keeping your posture, keeping your chest up, keeping your spine elongated and stable. And all of these, quoting the term anti-rotation, present real quality work. Now, the crazy thing about it is you don't even have to use any resistance. Different exercises like uh, bird dogs, that's a term that's used. Most people understand it. You're on your hands and knees. You reach out keeping your back flat, you reach out with your left hand and back with your right leg, all right? So you're like a, 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 you know, a bird dog, a hunting dog, yeah, hunting dog. A, pointer, yeah. a pointer, right? Um, the old American pointer, and you do it to both sides. So now you're doing it, the stability in your hips, the stability in your spine, the stability in your scapula. The shoulders don't go up to the ears. Everything stays down. We retraction and depression. You go through the bird dogs, which is now unilateral and bilateral, and you flip inside to side, okay, to uh, you get on your back and you do glute bridges. You know, you're in a crunch position and you lift your, your butt off the ground and you straighten out your back and you hold it, okay? You hold it for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, whatever. Uh, planks. Plank is a huge thing about anti-rotation. We got to stay stable. We got it there. You know, bring it into split squats. Bring it into step-ups. We're not rotating the hips. We're not turning the shoulders. We're not caving in. We're staying parallel and straight up while we're doing the movement. And um, I just thought that it was a brilliant way to explain it. And, I mean, there's all kinds of different variations. You know, you can do a, a squat while you're hot, holding on to a resistance band with both hands, you know, separate resistance band attached to a, a pole or a squat rack or whatever, or even tubing to a fence. And you're doing your squat and you, you know, you back up so that uh, there's some tension in the resistance band and you go do your squat or your split squat or your things like that. And you're not over rotating. You're not letting, you know, the sides twist and all the thing. And I think it's something that should definitely be focused on, especially in the little league age kids, because in these conditioning camps with the group trainings that I do, um, you know, even when we start to get the kids to hinge properly, some of them, you know, they're strong kids. And once they learn the movement pattern, they hinge, you know, then they, of course, they want more weight. They want this and they want that. And then the second you put them on the ground to do some of this stability and mobility work, um, you know, they're falling all over the place. And, you know, not that they get frustrated because it's new, but it is to them. It's kind of like real eye opening because, wait, I, I thought I was strong enough and I can, I'm a good pitcher and I can hit the ball over the fence and I can do a lot of this. Why can't I do this simple thing? And that's the key because we work so much on creating force and we don't work on controlling force. Yeah. You know, we had, uh, Jeff Pentland was on yesterday with Bob Schaefer on, uh, touch them all, former MLB hitting coach. He didn't use that same phrase, but he touched on 
the, the other side of the stick now where you're talking pitching, he was talking hitting. He sees that as a huge issue with hitters as well, that, that uh, emphasis on rotating so much has taken kids off that linear path, which you're supposed to be on a linear path toward the ball, and they've lost that direction. They've lost that ability to, uh, you know, instead of uh, controlling the bat, just swinging the bat, and they often swing off the ball where you're seeing so many pop-ups, so many strikeouts, and so many oblique injuries. Um, so he, he didn't use that same phrase, but it's, it's interesting that you guys hit on the same topic using different verbiage and uh, un, not choreographed, which is, uh, shows two things. One, that we've got great people on the show, too, that I'm actually paying attention on the other end producing. But, uh, great, yeah, it's a great concept for both sides. I, yeah. I, I agree 100%. You know, um, Jeff hit the nail on the head because, you know, I see a lot of young hitters. that um, They've turned into uh, the old track and field hammer throwers. Yeah, who's swinging who, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, now, let's understand something. Uh, my 10-year-old, all right, uh, he's playing basketball now. He's having a blast. We've, we've found some really good coaches, and, and it's, it's turned out to be quality, even though it just began. But he recently grew, oh, in, in the last five to six months, he, he grew another – Two and a half inches. He, he's ten years old. He's five foot three, and uh, and he could create a tremendous amount of bat speed. But at the point of contact, there's times that he's focused so much on creating that bat speed to hit that ball hard that he loses his balance and posture at contact. Yeah, now, that's why things like pepper are so important. Yeah, control. Exactly. Now, the thing about young ball players that we've spoken about in the past is I don't I don't like doing rotational type resistance work with a majority of kids younger than 14 years old. Okay, whether whether it's um, um, a lot of times that I mean, if we want to talk about what could go wrong there. You're starting to see a lot of kids with stress fractures in their spine, uh, stress fractures in their hips, because those bones, the growth plates haven't formed. They're not ready. You know, the musculature isn't there. Next thing you know, they're throwing a medicine ball and rotational type activities. Um, guys younger than 14. And, and of course, we've spoken in the past about the difference between, you know, chronicolog- chron- chronological age and skeletal age and muscular age and stuff like that. But, you know, generally speaking, um, them just playing basketball, riding their bikes, running up and down, climbing trees, you know, climbing fences, you know, playing tag, uh, playing basketball, playing football. They're doing enough rotational work. You know, they don't really have to have to focus on it. So what happens is then they should be doing anti-rotation work. (laughs) That's the kicker. All right, because sometimes we say, well, we shouldn't do the rotational work. Yes, but we should still be doing the stability work because that's going to lead into their ability to do the rotation work. Yeah. Rotation takes care of itself. That's, uh, I mean, and that's, I think, what you're saying about, about Seamus. I see that with, I mean, my, my boys are still developing uh, physically, mentally, uh, skeletally. And there's times, yeah, they're, they're so focused on uh, hitting that ball hard and, you know, using force to get through it, that they lose track of that, that linear path, which is to direct your body 
and control your body, as you're saying it, toward the ball. So, but it's funny, uh, Pentland said the same thing yesterday about age. He won't work with a kid younger than 15 because of the same things you said. Unprompted, just, I thought that was, that was, that was awesome. Yeah, like, I'll give you an example. The other day, I'm getting ready to work, do some work, and um, there's a hitting coach, and I've seen him before. He does, he does good work. He does good work, right? Um, but next thing you know, he's throwing BP to a kid, and I guess they're working on the inside pitch, and he throws a pitch, and it's probably – probably a ball on the inside and um, the kid opens his hips early, rotates early and hits a bomb. And the instructor says, you see, that's the way to do it. You would have never been able to get to that pitch if you tried to get your hands to the ball. Well, for young kids, like you just referred to where, Jeff Pentland said he wouldn't work with a younger guy. So for young kids, you're now working on the rotational aspects of the swing when they're not ready for it. They're not prepared for it. They don't have the proper stability. And you're attempting to create force, which they shouldn't be working on. Okay. They should be creating the force with their hands. They should learn to get their hands to the baseball and to get through the baseball and to stay on the baseball. And, and what happened to the old adage, hands inside the ball? Once you, once you go rotational, those hands end up for a young guy that don't, doesn't have the proper stability. Those hands ends up outside the ball, and and swing around it, and they're hooking everything, swinging around it. Now, I'll give an, another example of that. Okay, so as I've said in the past, I use technology where it's appropriate to confirm what a young guy is feeling or what a young guy is learning. Um, whether it's video, last week Jeff Schaefer mentioned he's a he's a he's a visual guy. That's how he learns. He's a visual learner. So if you get visual learners, yes, looking at video without necessarily having to break it down to all its components is beneficial for them to see what they're doing. So in that aspect, the technology is is beneficial. But I'm speaking about different specifics and analytics and spin rates and all this other stuff. So I do use, uh, once we've established that with young hitters and the feel of what they're doing and the, the ability to repeat it, to stay stable, to have their balance, maintain their posture, I use the, the uh, swing analyzer, Blast Motion, right? And it's a, it's a quality product. There's no, there's no denying it, all right? Now, I'm not going to overload a young ball player with every single number that that thing's spitting out to me, okay? But they do have a dashboard where they break the swing down into swing path, um, I'm forgetting the names right now, but swing path, what I call hard contact. So swing path will give you your consistency of contact. Uh the middle, the middle number, which I'm forgetting right now, is basically showing you the hard contact. And the third is rotation. Okay. So I don't even look at the third number for anybody under 14 years old. 
Now, some guys do it naturally, but that's not a goal, okay? Because I haven't moved into those rotational patterns and any of that. We're working at the stability. So if we're not focused on rotation, where a young hitter, in my opinion, gets his power is the ability to make hard contact. So the hard contact, when you look at all the numbers that make up the the uh, the number, which is just a culmination of all the others. The hard contact is, of course, your quality swing path, hand speed, hand speed, bat speed, and early and late connection. So the late connection is at contact. If you have good balance and posture at contact, you're going to be biomechanically and anatomically in your strongest position. And then that bat is not going to vibrate as much for a young guy. And that ball is going to be hit hard. And that's where his power comes from. And then as they graduate up into their teenage years, then we start working on different rotational aspects, especially if they've done the anti-rotation stability work and they progress to that. Now we can see what the true measure of power is in upper body rotation, upper body acceleration, and the other things that add to it. But let's go way back to the beginning of all these podcasts. Too many times we're training 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old kids as if they're 35-year-old men and have been playing the last 10 years in the big leagues. Okay, it doesn't work. So my question to you now, when are you going to write a book? When are you going to do your book? Well, um, I completed the other day a kind of general outline, guideline. Uh, I'm not yet sold on the title, but we'll, we'll work on that. Currently, it's called Pitching Mastery, a comprehensive guide for youth baseball players. So it's being proofread right now, and then I'm going to work on which platform. Uh, whether it's an ebook or paperback or whatever that I put it out on. So we're in the, we're in the stages that the, the writing part is basically completed. Hopefully I don't have to make many changes after it's being proofread. I have a, I have a client whose dad um, previously worked 30 years as a, with a publishing company as a proofreader and editor and the whole thing. And then um I've started to focus on um, a more detailed book that goes into the whole philosophy of triple spin and proper pitching delivery and proper pitching uh, mechanics and how to create as much quality force, efficient force as possible to get to the baseball. Uh, I'm in the initial draft stages of that. Um, So we'll see. We'll see. But I'm hoping that, if I get the two of them done by, um, let's say, the end of January, uh, because I'll be away for Christmas, so by the end of January, uh, that's a goal of mine. Uh, and then after that, uh, there's a couple of things I, I've already mentioned. Coming up in January, at uh, there's two options. You can come to Next Level Kids, the facility I work out of in Fort Mill, South Carolina, and in January, do the pitches, pitchers on ramp to get ready for the season. We've talked about different interval throwing programs and then mound work that usually goes for the young guys four to five weeks, 
to the junior high school guys, you know, five to six, and then almost all the way up to eight weeks for the high school guys and, and, and beyond. Um, and there's also a hitter's boot camp where we go over a lot of the different things in the uh, realm of the anti-rotation and how to drive those hands in a linear fashion to the baseball. And basically they're going to be going on in January to get ready for the upcoming season. Uh, but I also make them available where I do, I have, and I'm currently doing it, um, go to different travel teams training facility and oversee that whole process, that onboarding, on-ramping. And besides that, the only other thing that's on the horizon is um, the Pitching Kinetics program up in New Jersey. I was going to ask about that, where you're at with that. It's up and running. Um, Currently, it's in the uh, on-site facility uh, training mode. We've got, um, I think at last count, there was 20. 20 young pitchers up in the New York metropolitan area. That got going quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to compliment my, uh, my brother, Mike and, uh, Vinny Perez on the, the physical therapist that we've spoken in the past. Vinny yeah. Perez. Jim Cott. He worked Jim Cott. Through yeah. His yeah. On an, uh, just an outstanding job. I, like, like I said, I, I can, on a daily basis, I send them, anything from press releases to further explanations and different thought processes that the three of us then discuss uh, on how the program's moving forward. Uh, but those are the guys that, they're, you know, those two and, and the other pitching coaches, young pitching coaches and strength coaches and trainers are there on a daily basis applying himself. And so far the uh, reviews have been outstanding. Uh, but on the horizon for pitching kinetics, um, I'm going to be in some uh, – couple of zoom calls with the uh i guess you would call it the uh an app uh an app creator so that we're going to take this uh whole process looking long term for a a hybrid model where you can come um to the facility during the winter and go through the program and then be trained online uh during the course of your preseason to season to fall season. And then also totally online where the app will be all about the exercise prescription, the training modules, all the protocols. And all you got to do is, you know, follow along and, and put your information in and, and, uh, you know, keep continually update your videos so we can break down and follow the progress. So, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm really interested in seeing what that all looks like when it's completed. So hopefully that'll be done soon. And uh, I guess when, if you add the books and the pitching kinetics and some of the other things I'm doing, uh, usually the winter you're a little slower and, and, and you get some time off, but it seems as if uh, everything's speeding up here. So that's a good thing. Yeah. You, well, you've just reversed your schedule. That's all. During the, the time that used to be a little bit more dormant, you're you're, uh, that's when you're needed now in baseball. So I, I love the role that you've, you've, uh, you know, you've, you've been called to in, in baseball, youth baseball needs you, grassroots baseball needs you. And with this, with this, uh, opportunity in New Jersey, you're going to be dealing with some high level people, I believe. Uh, so I am, uh, I, I'm going to encourage, uh, and I'm, I want you to share with kids how to connect with you, but with the next level baseball and with uh, with the project in New Jersey, how do kids connect to those or how do families connect to those individually? Yeah. Currently, all of that information is on my uh, Rooney Baseball Facebook page. Uh, updates, 
different posts, different things of, of the progress and everything like that. Um, as soon as we get a little deeper into that app being up and running, after it goes through, I guess you say that, that uh, beta test period, if you want to say, um, we'll have more you know, direct information as far as how to register and how to be part of what's going on. Uh, but currently, the best way uh, to check on that, Next Level Kids, and I'm continually doing posts on Rooney Baseball, also on Next Level Kids in Facebook and sending out messages and emails and stuff like that. And if all else fails, you can contact me, send a message through my website, RooneyBaseball.com, or just send an email directly to uh, Coach Jim at RooneyBaseball.com. Um, happy to answer your questions. and. Uh, hopefully dive deeper into some of these things. Uh, there's been people that have sp spoken to me in the past. And a lot of times what I do is I email them different, different articles or different research studies based on hip mobility and different things. And then an exercise protocol and a prescription to follow. And then they get back to me and we take it from there. So that's where we're at right now. Well, I love it. I think it's, uh, those are, those are some major undertakings between a book and, the training programs you're doing, the multiple training programs you're doing, and and then the uh, the project in New Jersey. I'm excited to see how that evolves with both the push of all three of you guys, uh, three motivated, very intelligent, uh, heart and minds in the right place baseball people um, pushing that thing. Um, it, it, it's going to help out a lot, of, a lot of kids, a lot of families. So I encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. We love, obviously, here on our network here, Real Voice of the Game, Toe the Rubber, gets great response from people very unique approach to, to podcasting here. We're not a visual uh, podcast. It's audio only, but you do a wonderful job of uh, wordsmithing it to, to give people a great picture of what you're talking about. So that's a unique skill in itself. And I think it tells us a little bit about why you're such a great teacher. Well, thank you for that. I think, uh, you know, uh, in my family, whether they're actual school teachers, my wife's a public school math teacher, uh, my brother, who's the head coach at Don Bosco Prep, he's a high school uh, teacher. Uh, Brother-in-law is a high school teacher. Sister-in-law is an elementary school teacher. And um, one of the things that you learn, and hopefully this helps everybody when it comes to whether you're picking a school to go to or an individual to work out with or, or just some information that's beneficial for your own personal development, Um one of the true characteristics that I've always seen in somebody that's very good at teaching or instructing and helping people learn is that they care. That's the, that's the common denominator, no matter what you're teaching and what industry you're in or what subject you're trying to get across, across to, to young people is that you care. And the people that care will find a way to help you. Okay. It's, it's with regular occurrence that they go the extra yard to try to help you out. Um, and the thing is, is, you know, not to steal something from, you know, all the th different things that you can do to help out with, you know, mental health and all of the things that are plaguing us currently in our society. But there are people there to help you. It's available, especially in this day and age. The problem is, is that there's a lot of people that don't really care about you. Now, they care if you become a big league pitcher 
or college stud or your dad's got a lot of money and, you know, donates it to their facility or helps part of the process. Yeah, they care then. But I'm talking about they care about you as an individual so you can be the best that you can be, whatever that ends up being. Yeah, no, I think in, and I'll give another disclaimer. I always ask our guests when we bring them on. And obviously you're not a guest, you're a host, but I always ask them, how do you tell the difference? It's a tough answer for people to to uh, put their, their heads around. But I, I'm, I'll caution families out there right now. Be, beware the academic that's never been a teacher. Beware the teacher that's never been a doer. Um, those are some things you want to look at when you're when you're uh, trying to select who should be in front of your children. So a great show today, Jim. We appreciate what you do. I know we kept you for an hour today, maybe a little longer. That was my selfish questions at the end that, that kind of put you over. So hopefully you had the time to do it. You were kind enough to stay on through it. So I appreciate that. And so does our audience of 60,000. Thank you guys. You guys know what to do. Five stars, write some comments so we can keep climbing the charts uh, in the podcast world. Blackout Coffee, thank you so much. Be awake, not woke. Type in capital J-A-M-E-R 20 at checkout. And on Jim, he's getting you 20% off at checkout. So uh, you can thank Jim after that. But buy as much coffee as you need for the holiday. Pass it out as stocking stuffers. And speaking of stocking stuffers, Ted Kubiak's books, Old School. It's the ba- it's his, his pastime through the lens of Ted Kubiak, former three-time world champion with the A's. Uh, Jim Cott says the smoothest fielding shortstop he ever saw out there. He also has a great manual on fielding. Uh, I have both books on my bookshelf, and it's How to Field a Baseball. Very simple, but the most comprehensive look at how to field a baseball for your kid. So if you, if you have a, a baseball lover in your family or a young one that's out there trying to get in the game, those are two great books for him. So with that, uh, Toe the Rubber today, episode 376, I believe. Jim, thanks so much for what you do. We appreciate you. Well, Dave, thank you, and uh, look forward to talking to everybody next week. Yeah, you think you're tough. Try that here.